Morning, everyone. So I find that I'm not quite ready to be done with Christmas yet. Does anyone else feel that where like Christmas comes and goes and then you go like, could we just have a few more days? And then I was really pleasantly surprised to find out that we're actually still in the middle of Christmas on the, Christmas, uh, on the Christian calendar. Um, you've heard the song, The 12 Days of Christmas. It turns out that's not just like made up out of nowhere. They weren't just like, well, we need 10 drummers and 12, 12 drummers. That's not how it went. There's, there's a holiday. There's a celebration that starts. We go through Advent, right? We've been going through Advent for the last uh, four weeks. And now we've arrived at Christmas. Christmas starts on Christmas Day and is a 12-day celebration um, on the church calendar. So I'm going to take advantage of that, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about Christmas. Um, Christmas is my, it's, for most of my life, it has been my favorite time of the year. Like, there's a joy and a wonder just kind of in the air, and I, anyone who knows me knows I am a big fan of fun, and Christmas is like filled with fun, especially growing up at my house. Uh, we are very, very into celebrating. So Christmas uh, has always been a really big deal. Like uh, decorating for Christmas, it wasn't just like, hey, let's get out the Christmas decorations. It would take like a full three days and everything comes down. Everything from like uh, curtains. Curtains are generally replaced with, I remember very, I'm thinking right now about the red curtains in the basement. They're not always red. They're only red at Christmas time. Um, there's uh, a shower curtain that is in all the bathrooms that are snowmen and various things like that. Uh, there's a tree in every room of the house. Christmas is a big deal. Then uh, my brother and my dad and I, we started this tradition whenever I was young where we get in uh, pajamas, Christmas pajamas and Santa hats and we go shopping uh, like one night, pretty late, reasonably late, late enough that it's weird. It's not weird to be wearing pajamas, but it's weird to be in public. That's kind of, you sit in that, that space. Um, and we put on Santa hats and we go out and we go Christmas shopping. Uh, and then Christmas was always filled with Think of the most snack foods that you could imagine, and then just a few more than that. Many presents. It was, it was always an amazing, wonderful, joyous occasion growing up. And then, then I went off to college, and the, the summer after my freshman year of college, uh, I, I went uh, to China. And um, in China, I... It was, it was a mission trip, and we, we went to inner, inner China, like deep in, where there is a lot of poverty. Um, there's a lot of need. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of pain. And I saw those things in ways that I never had before. And I was with these guys who... I, as I'm grappling with, like, what do, I, what do I do with this? Their answer was, well, they're suffering so that God can be glorified. It's our job to make sure that they're taken care of. And in those few weeks that I was there, my faith and my confidence in God and humanity and in myself was all pretty much shattered. 
Um, I came back and I was a different person. Um, I had so many questions. I had so many hurts and frustrations and so much guilt and sadness. I was, I was really deeply overwhelmed. And, and Christmas didn't avoid that. Christmas didn't get a free pass of the hurt and the guilt and the sadness and the questions. Because the next Christmas rolled around and I'd go and reach for the Christmas cookie and I'd find myself going, you know, there's somebody out there dying right now because they don't have enough to eat. And Christmas came around, Christmas Day, and I'd get presents and they'd be fun, but I'd find myself going, there are people out there who literally have nothing. And I already have more than I need. And there would be other times where we'd just be spending time together, hanging out, family and friends, having fun. And I'd go, should I be having fun right now? Like, there are people dying and hurting and in so much need is this, is this okay? And I had a lot of different feelings, but most of them sad and angry about and towards God. Um, sometimes I would think of this, these words of Jesus. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. For whatever you did not do unto the least of these, you did not do for me. And I would feel terrified and guilty and like it was on me to take care of everybody in the world or else like God was not going to be okay with me um I was not okay um and I didn't know what to do with that and then other times uh I would get angry with God and I would find myself going so wait a second this is my responsibility aren't you supposed to be the all-powerful one like, how is this on me that there are people hurting? How is this not on you? And this went on for years. Um, I didn't know what to do with the things that I thought and the things that I felt. They were overwhelming. They seemed like too much. And some years, the guilt and the sadness would be more intense than others but it was always there. So I turned to the scriptures and I studied obsessively. And I mean like obsessively. I, I got a degree in Bible and I spent about three times as much time studying outside of my classwork as I did in my classwork. Like I had to find the answer. Somewhere in these scriptures, there had to be an answer that was clear cut and would, would let me know what was going on and if I could feel safe or if I needed to just like get going and do things so I could be okay. Um, there had to be some kind of answer to pain and suffering. So, so I, I had so many books. 
our, our apartment was literally just like pile of books here, pile of books here, everywhere. And they were all like, one time my wife came in, I was laying on our bed reading, like there was a pile of books. And I, you know, I'd like be reading in a book and it would make me think of something else and make me have another question. I'd be like, oh, I think I have a book that talks about that. And I'd go over here and grab this one. So everywhere, there were just books everywhere. And I'm laying on the bed with a pile of books and very sweetly and kindly, my wife comes in and throws a book at me and says, your books are everywhere. Clean up your books. She was joking. She wasn't like actually really angry, but it was a lot of books. And uh, then, then when I, I wasn't studying obsessively, I spent so much time praying and asking God, like, what's going on here? How do I make sense of this? Are you good? Can I trust you? Are we okay? Are, and, and I would literally, like I remember times where I would lay on the floor and my body would convulse because I was crying so hard because I was so just like, I don't know, like there, what is safe in the world? Um, is there not some kind of answer for this? And, and at the end of the day, does it fall on me? So this went on for years, and eventually, um, I began to find some hope in the place that I least expected it, and that was when a spiritual director advised me to stop trying so hard, and at his uh, direction, I, uh, I stopped reading the Bible for a year. I took a fast. Um, because the Bible had become some weird magic book of answers to me rather than a way to connect with God. Um, and I stopped trying to find the magic answer that would get God to, like that I could get God's attention and I started paying more attention to my wife and, and I lived more. And towards, after a year of that, I... Uh, I started reading the Bible again and praying more uh, in, with the river doing Lexio Divina. And as we started that, it didn't take too long before I came across this passage. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come to the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how much he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had done this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. We live in a world that is full of paradox and tension. The ignorant bliss that I experienced as a child was an appropriate response to the world that I knew. But it wasn't the whole picture. Then as I got older, and I saw suffering in a real way, the guilt and the sadness that I felt, that was an appropriate response to the world I had come to know. But that also wasn't the whole picture. I think in this passage right here, in this story about Jesus, we see Jesus holding that whole paradox and that whole tension of death and life, of joy and of sadness, of death and resurrection. I don't think the things that I felt were wrong. I think the things that I felt were necessary for me to grow. The reality is that there is goodness and there is joy in the world. And it is so very real. But also, pain and suffering and darkness are very, very real. So I want to be clear here before I go on. Whatever else you hear me saying, I'm not saying ever that as Christians we get a free pass when it comes to having to grapple with the suffering of the world. That's pretty much what you signed up for whenever you said you were going to follow Jesus. He calls us time and time again to be his hands and feet in bringing healing and life and light into the world. But As we grapple with that pain and that suffering and that darkness, 
We don't need to be overwhelmed by it or overcome by it because we have been given a preview of what's coming. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There is no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. We sit in a very similar tension to the one that Jesus did. Where Jesus knew that death was going to be reversed. He knew that things were going to be made right. Things were going to be made whole. And that was the ultimate reality. But he also looked around him. And he saw the pain of the people that he loved. And that was real. So he joined in their suffering. He joined in their pain. And he took it on himself. And then he turned around and raised Lazarus from the dead. If we are to truly be his disciples, that's the tension that we have to sit in. The kingdom that's here, but not yet fully realized. A resurrection that is like taking place now, but we don't yet fully see it. And that brings us back to our Advent themes, right? We've been spending the last four weeks talking about hope, peace, joy, and love. And I think that, that these things, these things that really in a lot of way make up the, the foundation of the Christian life are rooted in a place of being able to sit in this tension in a, with trust, that we trust that God, God wins. That hope, joy, peace, love, they overcome and they win because God is victorious in the end, because he overcomes the darkness, because he overcomes evil. We, when, when we believe that, when we trust in that, there's space for hope, love, peace, and joy to grow in us. Whenever we don't have to stick our heads in the sand and pretend like suffering doesn't exist. And when we don't have to become overwhelmed. Whenever we don't have to to let the despair in the world become our despair. It's not guilt and sadness. And it's not blissful ignorance. It's sitting in between those things with the knowledge that God is going to make things right. And that brings me full circle to Christmas because it's all well and good for like God to say, I'm making all things new. But 
I don't think he calls us to just blindly trust that. I mean, I could stand up here and say, I am going to give every one of you a German shepherd puppy named Chester. You don't know if that's true. You don't know what kind of resources I have. You don't know if I know that many Chesters. And I got a similar, like, low-key kind of pity laugh in first service, and I'll tell them the same thing. You, the same thing I told them. I think it's funny. I think that's a funny joke, and I'm keeping it in because I think it's funny. Um, But, like, on what grounds does God ask us to trust him? And at Christmas, God said, like, this is how serious I am about redemption. This is how serious I am about making all things new. That in Jesus, God enters into our world, enters into our life, and shows us what it means to be human, and shows us what God looks like. And then he let us murder him. And as we were murdering him, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if you want to know what God looks like, I think there is no better place in the entire world to go to than Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he descends into death and conquers death and brings us back to life. So how can we know that we can trust God? Because he has already gone down to death for us. He has already saved us and redeemed us and brought us back out of death into life. And if that's not something we can trust, if a God who's willing to die so that he can bring us back to life isn't something we can trust, I don't know what there is that we can trust. And that kind of, that kind of God saying like, this is, I mean it, allows us to be able to sit in the darkness of the world with joy and with hope, bringing peace, bringing love, bringing bringing God's presence into the darkness, bringing his light into the darkness. And now we turn to communion, right, to the Lord's table. Because I, I, I'm standing up here talking about God entering into our world and taking on our pain and our suffering. But often words aren't enough to really remember something, right? So God gave us this. And it's this reminder that God came into our world And we broke his body. God came into our world and we spilled his blood. And we said, screw you, we want nothing to do with you. And God responded like this. You break my body, but this is my body broken for you. You spill my blood, but this is my blood spilled for your forgiveness. You can throw your hate at me. You can throw your anger at me. You can throw your sin and your darkness. But I forgive you and I'm bringing you back to life. So when we take in this blood, his blood and his body, this bread and this juice, we're remembering. This is who we, we are as a human race. 
We killed God. But this is who he is. He had nothing but love and forgiveness in return. And that is what gives us the hope and the ability to be his people and his light in the world.